0: I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings with economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show or even have a conference call with them so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion worth of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them at 514-488-3168 and see how Research FDI can help you create real prospects hello this is chad chancellor with next move group before we begin today's podcast if you've been enjoying our podcast series please go over to apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review that'll sure help us out we'd appreciate it a whole lot
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the We Are Jobs podcast. This is Alex Metzger, co-founder of Next Move Group, and I am hosting today. For those of you all that tuned in last week, Chad Chancellor and I can switch things up, and he did a bio interview on me. This came to us from one of our movement members, Marco Mel. He called us and asked if we would do a bio podcast on each other. So, It was a great idea from Mark, and so this week, I am going to uh, switch the tables around and get to interview Chad about uh, many things, including Mississippi State and his golf career that never happened, and next move group. So, Chad, thank you for being with me today.
0: You're bringing up Mississippi State right after Ole Miss whips us in basketball, and Ole Miss is no good. They whip us in football. I don't know how much of that I want to talk about.
1: Well, I've been bringing it up ever since Kentucky whooped you in football, but anyway... Well, Uh, we had
0: Kentucky beat in basketball, and we gave the game away, so I don't want to hear much of that. Kentucky's not very good.
1: I have a lot more I want to get into, but are you saying you all lost to Kentucky in both basketball and football yet? We
0: did, but we had you beat in basketball, and the coach gave the game away, and I don't think you've won a game since. So, I mean, I don't even know if you're going to make the NIT.
1: Well, we'll see. A lot of time left. But anyway, back to the show at hand. I guess let's start out the same place we started out last week with me, and Talk a little bit about how you learned about economic development and the story of you getting into the industry. Well, the story
0: is absolutely terrible and tragic and heartbreaking, honestly. How I learned about the industry is the same as you. I did a leadership program when I was in high school. I think last week you said you did yours later on as an adult. But where I grew up in Mississippi, the Economic Development Foundation did a leadership program for juniors in high school. And they picked me for that. So we got to turn around once a month, it seems like. And I learned what economic development was. I got interested in it. I really didn't know. I was always interested in how can we better our town and get jobs here? Because I saw plants, multiple plants, leave my little town when I grew up. But I really didn't know it was anybody's job to go do that till I did that leadership program. But I still didn't know to get in it. And then one day I was sitting at Mississippi State. I guess I was a senior. And my mother called and she said, have you heard the terrible news from my hometown? And I said, no, the economic developer, his mother's house had caught on fire. He lived across the street, main four lane road. Naturally, he ran over concerned about her safety as any of us would and didn't look. And one of the police cars ran him over and killed him on the spot. This is honest to God's truth. Of course, I thought a lot of him having done that leadership program, And I told my mother, I said, you know, I've always been interested in that, but I wouldn't even know when to bring this up. I mean, this was such a terrible, terrible thing. So she told some of the folks that she knew and probably three or four months later, they wanted to certainly honor his memory. Three or four months later, they called me and wanted to know if I would come interview for the economic development job. And next thing I knew, I was hired as the economic developer. So that's exactly how it came about. I have often thought of that. He was a well-respected man. One day, I want to do something in his honor. I'm probably the only person in the world that got in it through a tragedy, but that's honest to goodness truth.
1: I've heard you tell that story many times, and it's always uneasy every time I hear it. You know, it's just amazing how fate puts us in the places that we are in currently. You know, he was big into SEDC, and one time I served on the SEDC board, and one of my
0: dreams was to bring an SEDC to Biloxi, because he was big on the coast in Mississippi, and honor him somehow or another. And so who knows, maybe one day we'll be able to do that because I just think back to, I think he was highly involved in Southern Mess, you know, close to where I grew up. And so um, I've always thought about that. And I guess I always will.
1: Well, speaking of your early days, and most people are amazed by this, but you went to school into the golf management program. I know you were a pretty decent high school golfer and wanted to make that your career. So talk a little about that and What you learned from that, the transition today, and how come you didn't stay in the golf industry? Well, it's the best thing that ever happened to me getting into
0: golf. I was raised rural, hardworking, smart family. All my family's smart. All of them's hardworking, a whole bunch. But I was raised very rural. I mean, you know, we might go to Atlanta for a vacation or something, but we hardly ever went very far. So I just had never seen any of the country other than our little rural towns. But I was a good golfer. I got good in high school, never had one lesson. I watched it on TV, and I remember the first day the Golf Channel came out, Mom and Daddy let me subscribe to it, and they had lessons. Every night, they'd have a Golf Channel Academy, 30 minutes, and they teach you how to play golf, and I learned it that way. So sure enough, in high school, I won some tournaments, and I was good, and I learned about Mississippi State. The principal at my high school's son-in-law is now the head golfer at East Lake Country Club in Atlanta, a very prestigious, where Bobby Jones was. This fella happened to be my principal. I was good at golf, so he would hang around the golf team. And he told me Mississippi State had a program where you got a business degree and you got to be a Class A PGA golf professional. That interested me. And so off I went to Mississippi State. You had to have a handicap, I think, of less than six or seven. I can't remember. But I got my scores to where I could go. And off I went to Mississippi State. And then the best thing that ever happened to me, that program makes you intern every year. So rather than waiting until I was a senior to intern when I was a freshman, I went off to Lafayette, Louisiana, which to me was a far away. You got to understand I was raised rural. I went up to the Louisiana Golf Association. Carl McCullough hired me, and I went to Lafayette. I was 19, had never been anywhere in my life, and I stayed right by myself for like nine months. I was there all summer and winter, and I stayed nine months. And as part of that, the USGA flew all of us around the country who had these internships to Fall Hills, New Jersey, where the USGA is headquartered. And we spent a week up there learning all the rules of golf, learning to teach, this, that, learning how to run golf tournaments. First time I'd ever been on an airplane. Literally the first time i ever been on an airplane. And so I got to see New York. We went to Yankee Stadium. We watched the Red Sox and the Yankees. David Cohn pitched the game. This was in 2001, right before September 11th. It just opened my world. It was a world out there I had never seen. And um, I also got to see all of Louisiana because working for the Louisiana Golf Association, every weekend we'd have a different amateur tournament in different parts of the state. So you'd have the Mid-Am in Shreveport, and then you liable to have, you know, the state amateur championship in Monroe, and then you would have the women's amateur championship in, you know, Lake Charles. And so I fell in love with all of Louisiana, not just New Orleans. I fell in love with Louisiana traveling around. And I also got to see my boss's car, McCullough. I believe he's still there. Running the Louisiana Golf Association is just like running an economic development. He had a board he had to deal with. He had financials. He had people had this opinion where we should play the state am. This one wanted us to play the state am somewhere else. I actually got to watch him handle board meetings. I had never sat in any kind of a board meeting in my life. And so I got to watch him do that. And so certainly when I got into economic development, My first board meeting I ever run, I went back to how did the Louisiana Golf Association run it. So without a question, without a question, if I had not taken that internship, I wouldn't be sitting here today because it broadened my horizon, fell in love with Louisiana, taught me how to run boards and so on and so forth. I then interned at the TPC of the Woodlands, Texas over in Houston, and that was a traditional. See, at Louisiana Golf Association, we ran tournaments every weekend. At the TPC of the Woodlands, I was dealing with the members, So you were getting out there at 5 o'clock in the morning getting the carts out. No, that wasn't any fun to me. And I went back to Mississippi State, and we had to shoot – I think you had to shoot basically two rounds of 75 to get your classification, you know. And so I went back to Mississippi State. And today, you could take it more than once. But the first time I signed up, it was cold. The wind was blowing 50 miles an hour. It's the coldest I've ever been in Starkville. The first 18, I shot 73. I think I was the best score. The second 18, the first hole, I duck hooked it out of bounds and made an eight. I shot a 92. And I said right then, I hated working in golf in the woodlands. And here I'm out here shooting a 92 and freezing. I said, the golf business ain't for me. And I instantly dropped it and got back in the business of great. Didn't know what I was going to do. But if it wasn't for those two experiences, particularly the Louisiana one, I wouldn't be sitting here today.
1: Well, speaking of sitting here today, we've been in business seven years together. So next move group, seven years now. How do you think it's gone? How would you grade us so far? And what's been your biggest accomplishment in the next move group? It's gone better than I thought. So I
0: always thought we would be successful, or I would have never ventured off in it, obviously. But I don't know that I ever pictured how success looked like. You know, when I go watch the Saints play football, I want them to win. I don't care if it's 49-48 or 3-0. to I want to win. And so I don't know that I ever pictured – how it would look but sitting here seven years later we've had over 250 clients from coast to coast a lot in Canada Brazil Israel I wouldn't believe that so yes it has gone better than I thought just did I think it would be successful yes but it has actually gone better than I thought and I'm real proud of us for growing during the pandemic and I have a lot of empathy for these small business owners because we've been in business seven years now what would you say Alex it took us three years to get real traction i'd say at
1: least three years
0: figure three to four years to get real traction so if covid would have hit us in our first year or two in business we'd have been in real trouble now when it hit us this year we actually have turned more profitable because we're traveling less spending less money and we've come out with all this online training but i have so much empathy for these people who have started a business right and this hit them we started in 14. if this would have happened in 15 or 16 you and I would probably have not made it. And so as successful as we've been, I'm tickled over it. I do have a tremendous amount of empathy for these businesses. Because you start a business, you're so excited. You put your heart and soul in it and then boom, you have something like this happen. I have a lot of empathy for them.
1: No, I agree wholeheartedly. I have put a lot of thought into that myself, how the timing kind of worked out for us. There's many times in our past that you're right. This pandemic would have hit. We would have been in trouble, probably would be doing something else. Luckily, we had reached a critical mass and we're being profitable, you know, for a couple of years in a row. So I've often thought of that. What initiatives are you most excited about in our company moving forward?
0: I'm going to tell you what I'm most excited about. And if you'd have told me this a year ago, we never even thought of it. And so we can thank of a movement member for coming up with this. I am amazed at the amount of training videos that we have sold on economic development, board training, and elected officials training. We come out with that video in probably August. We're selling one a day. We sold one this week to Canada. We sold one a day to Ohio. It's nearly every day we're selling one. And we didn't even have this idea. One of our movement members said, can y'all make a video on board training and elected officials training? And we did. Let me tell you why that has really excited me. I think that economic developers have a top five hardest job in the world. There are some other jobs that are real hard, but economic development is one of them. They're having to marry up the public sector and the private sector. And that's the hardest thing in the world to do. All you got to do is turn on the news and see it. So I think what's exciting me, I have sat in economic development board meetings as the economic developer and thought to myself, this board don't get it or this particular member don't get it or this mayor don't get it. As we have done executive searches, I have thought to myself, this person don't get it. So I think what I'm excited about, and I would never believed this till we did it, is now we're going to help economic developers. If their boards watch our videos and their elected officials watch our videos, they ought to understand better what that economic developer has to do. And I think what I'm most excited about is selling these videos across this country, which in the long run will improve an economic developer's quality of life because maybe that board member that's giving them trouble will understand it better. Just yesterday, we got an email from an economic developer in the South who said he had bought the video and one of his commissioners had watched it and that he was just right now he understood it. So I think of anything I'm proud of, I know how hard those jobs are. I think if there's anything that I'm most excited about, it is defending this profession. Some of these economic developers have to deal with 40 board members. If I can help them just neutralize one that don't understand what it is, let me tell you, that excites me.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you learned that sitting on the other side of the table, being a local economic developer for seven, eight, ten years. So what have you learned about economic development as a consultant and doing the executive searches and the business that we're doing that you wish you knew back when you were a local economic developer? I know you had lots of success as a local economic developer, but you know what's the one thing that Next Move Group has taught you that if you could, could go back in time and implant in your brain that you would have wished you knew then? I'll
0: tell you, what it's taught me is there's no perfect job. There's no perfect community. There's no perfect structure. There's no perfect board. I hadn't seen one yet that doesn't have problems. Back when I was an economic developer, I was passionate about growing jobs. You know, when I was a boy in Mississippi, my dad lost his job when I was nine years old. Sunbeam moved to plant to China. And so when I'm out there trying to recruit a plant to a town, I'm serious about it now. I'm serious about it. I think when I was an economic developer, you would have people who wouldn't bend over backwards to help you they wouldn't necessarily be against you, but I never could understand that. I was sitting there thinking, my God, we're trying to get jobs in this town. Why won't you help me? You know, you'd run into a city manager or an elected official or or the guy that ran the water department or whatever. You know, you would just run into people. They wouldn't be opposed to you, but they wouldn't be, let's go light the world on fire to make this deal happen. I used to take that personally. I used to take that personally just because I couldn't understand it. To me, everybody ought to want to create jobs now that i have sat on this side of the table for seven years and done business across the country every town has a few people like that that doesn't make those people bad people i often think they don't understand economic development and that's fine i don't understand how i fly a jet airplane that doesn't make me a bad person i just don't understand it. and so if i had it to do over again I would have a way to always handle the naysayer, the person who thinks that my job as economic developers to get a new gas station on the corner, not to go create primary jobs. I would understand that's just going to be part of the job. I wouldn't take it personally. I would understand that uh, when you got that many board members, you're going to have a few people that probably don't exactly understand what your job is.
1: Well, I know you mentioned Sunbeam, and I've heard you tell the story many times the plant got moved and your dad was out of work. But talk a little bit about that story and how that kind of built a foundation for not only the success you've had, but really the passion for economic development that you possess.
0: Yeah, I was a boy and uh, I'm guessing I was third or fourth grade, nine years old, I believe. Yeah, it was 1991. My dad, hardworking fella, still to this day is one of the hardest working people you've ever known, was one of 10 kids, all farm kids. And they're all hard workers. He had twin brother who just passed The whole family's hard workers. And a bunch of them worked at a sunbeam plant in the little Mississippi town that I was in. And this man named Chainsaw Al Dunlap rode to town one day, told them all they were closing the plant and moving it to China. Five or 600 people. I think Diddy and his twin brother and a couple more from just our immediate family lost their job overnight. And I just remember that. My dad ended up getting work in construction work, made pretty good money. But every Sunday we'd watch the Saints. And as soon as the ball game went off, he would leave because you know they liable to have a job over in West Mississippi or far enough away he couldn't come home at night. And he wouldn't come home again till Friday. So I was raised in a single family home, not because of divorce, because of the lack of economic development. <laughs> I mean, that's just a that's just the honest to God's truth. And so from them, I got a tremendous work ethic. My dad and mom still to this day work, work, work. The minute that hurricane passed in October, they was out cleaning the yard. I mean, they didn't wait for one minute even to this day now that they're both retired and getting older. So I got a tremendous work ethic for them. They're both good with numbers. My dad can sit and figure you could ask him to figure seven digits plus an eight digit, and he can do it in his head without a calculator for you know it. And so I got all of that from them. But the passion certainly came from that. I saw what happens when an industry leaves a town. I saw that. In a small town, I saw it. And so you don't have to tell me how much an industry means, because if I saw what happens when it leaves, I know good and well what happens when it comes. And so that has always been my passion. And to this day, I go back to it. If I'm ever in a disagreement with somebody over something, economic development related, I ask myself, what can I do to help the blue-collar people out there, the hardworking blue-collar folks that just want a job? Is there one side of this issue or the other I ought to set off? It won't happen two or three times a year where you're in an argument with somebody over something. And that's always how I end up making my mind.
1: I do love that story. And I can just picture you 9, 10 years old and getting that news and being so close to your dad and seeing him drive off every week. When you were that age, what did you want to be when you grew up? When he came home and told you that news, where did you think your life was well, going to take you?
0: Right about in then. Right about in then. I kind of had wanted to be a football coach or a pharmacist. I had a cousin that was a pharmacist, and she made good money, and I'd always loved football, so I kind of had the idea of being a football coach, but I wasn't athletic, so I couldn't play it. But I literally, it was in February, right around then, I was flipping through the channels, and J.C. Snead, a golfer, was playing Pebble Beach, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am on CBS, and he missed. I just happened to hit on it. I thought golf was the most boring thing I've ever seen. I happened to hit on this channel, and he missed a two- or three-foot putt and threw his putter down and ran it and raved. J.C. Sneed was his name. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, I could have made that putty putt golf. Then all of a sudden, this was the prettiest piece of property. There was waves crashing into the shore. Everybody turned it on. It'll be coming on in a few weeks. Beautiful sunset. And I sat there and watched it. And for long, I got to watching golf. My birthday was right coming up. And I told mama I wanted some golf clubs. And she got me a driver and a five iron and a putter and some of these little styrofoam balls. They don't go very far. And I went out in the yard and I would hit them and I would hit pine combs and I would hit all this kind of stuff. Right about then, I decided I wanted to be a professional golfer when I grew up. And of course, I wasn't good enough to do it. But (laughs) right about then is when I decided she gave me those clubs. She gave me, I think it was three top flight balls. I remember picturing it and the little styrofoam ones. And I remember going, I hit the three out in the woods and they sliced terribly, but I thought they went far. I thought this is easy, but they'd sliced. From then on, I was
1: hooked. And so I probably wanted to be a golfer. I'm sure J.C. Sneed would agree, but I've seen you miss a three-foot putt before, Chad. So uh, you, well, you might make more than you miss, but I've seen you miss one too. Hopefully you handled yourself better than Sneed did that. Day. When I was in high school, I could put. My strength was my
0: irons, and I could put and all. But I tell you, golf brought me out of my shell. I was shy as a kid. I was always a little fat kid with glasses, and I was shy. But getting into golf, See, I was about 10, I guess, when I got my first clubs. But once I got to high school, I got on the golf team in the ninth grade. And I wasn't any good right at first, but I practiced every day. I played 36-hole every day in the summer. That brought me out of my shell because I learned to be competitive. And I found, I used to be quiet when I would get nervous on the golf course. If I talked, I had a little Lee Trevino in me. If I talked, it would calm me down. And so I could be coming up the last hole, and I could have bet a Coke with my buddy and I'd be nervous, and I'd just go to talking, and it would calm me down. And I'd knock it up right beside the pen. And so it got me to be extroverted, and it taught me to be competitive. And so, honest to goodness, if J.C. Snead hadn't missed that putt, if J.C. Snead hadn't missed that putt, I wouldn't be sitting here right now.
1: Thank you, Chad. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners and be right back with a lot more with Chad Chancellor right after this.
0: I want to thank Location one.com some of you know it as Lois, for sponsoring today's podcast. In my opinion, Lois is the best Buildings and Sites database on the market. One of the reasons I think that is it gives you nationwide exposure. So I used to be the economic developer in Paducah, Kentucky, and I made a terrible mistake. I only put my Buildings and Sites on the Kentucky Economic Development Buildings and Sites database. Well, Paducah bordered Illinois and was within 30 or so miles of Missouri, Indiana, and Tennessee. So what sense did it make for me to not put my buildings and sites on a nationwide database? Well, Lois does that for you. Looking back, I should have put my buildings and sites on Lois. It's also easy to use for an economic developer. It's just like using Facebook. It walks you through how to insert your pictures and your information and so forth. And the thing I like most, it works well on my iPad. If I'm in an industrial building, I want to be able to look at that thing on my iPad. Lois does that for me. Other buildings and sites databases struggle with that. So if you got 10 or 15 minutes to spare, go over to location one.com book yourself a demo and see if this can help your community have more success
1: switching gears a little bit you know what would you say the biggest influences on your career
0: certainly robert ingram many people know him he's big in south mississippi Robert took a liking to me right out of the bat when I knew nothing about economic development. I was doing economic development in my hometown, and Robert Ingram called me one day, and he said, Chad, the Mobile, Alabama Chamber is hiring a project manager. He said, and I see talent in you, but you really don't know the business. You just got hired into this job, and you don't know what you're doing. And I think if you could go to Mobile and learn under Bill Sisson, who I think is one of the best, I think you can make something of yourself. That's exactly what Robert Ingram told me, and I didn't really want to listen to him, but I went down there and met with Bill, and Bill hired me, and the rest was really history. I've had many, many more people who've had big influences on my career through the years, but if it wasn't for Robert getting me to Mobile, I would have never done anything as far as I know of, so he has to be it. When I was in Paducah, I had two people on our board who taught me to think like a business person. See, I never was raised with business people. One was a construction guy and one was a lawyer. And those two people, Ken Hunt and David Dentner, their names, taught me to think like a business person. I mean, I remember flying across the country on Ken Hunt's private plane talking business. They really taught me business. But wasn't for Robert Ingram, I'd have never got there. And then to be honest with you, I learned a lot from you and your father As we started this business, because I had never started a business. I was not an entrepreneur, and so I learned a lot from y'all through that process.
1: Also, you worked at McDonald's growing up. I know we haven't touched on that, but I worked at Backyard Burgers for a year or two, flipping Burgers. I know you worked at McDonald's. Between that and golf, we've had some similarities growing up. So talk a little bit about working at McDonald's and how that molded you into the person you are today.
0: Yeah, that was my first real job. I worked at McDonald's a summer or two to save up a little money when I was in high school, and I worked in the back cooking the hamburger, you know, and i tell you what it taught me was attention to detail. And that's something that I still like to teach our staff. And I go back, I guess one of my first days I cooked a hamburger and I put too much ketchup on it. And that ketchup got all over that hamburger. I didn't know it. I just put the wrapper on it and sent it out. And whoever got it complained. And my manager came back there and she chewed me out. She said, from now on, you prepare this hamburger like you want to eat it yourself. These people are going down the road and this ketchup gets all over this wrapper. It's going to get all over them. You prepare this like you want it yourself. I remember that to this day. And so now there are days where I'll tell our whole team, prepare this like you want it yourself, because that's a lesson that goes back. And McDonald's had some commercials not long ago they highlight a lot of people that's ended up very successful CEOs and stuff who got their start at McDonald's. So that's a little, a little tidbit.
1: Well, uh, you know, now that our staff's getting bigger, our, our company's growing and you and I are both kind of moving from more technical to more of a big picture role with things. What advice would you give the economic developers from a big picture standpoint on how to be better at their positions? To me, it's
0: simple. Never lose sight of the fact that most likely, Your biggest funders, your elected officials, and the public in town thinks that your job is to be the industrial recruiter. We all know that an economic developer's job is far more than recruiting new industries. We all know that. You've got to do BRA. You need good small business development programs based on the town you're in. You might need membership. You might need a. obviously need workforce training. But the public thinks you're an industrial recruiter. And so I would say embrace that. Always talk about recruiting, even if you have struggles in it. People take hope in thinking that some company wants to come to town. Gives them pride. Gives them pride. And so I think, especially as I interview people, you know, as we do these executive searches, a lot of times economic developers lead off with BRE and all. And to be honest with you, they're probably right in theory. But in reality, what the board and all want is a recruiter.
1: And so I wouldn't lose sight of that if I were economic developers. Great. Talk a little bit about your successful habits, your daily habits, your time management. How do you prepare in the mornings? How do you prepare and stay organized? What are some tidbits that you could give the economic developer that they could maybe replicate and be productive and have success?
0: Well, I don't have nearly the tips that you do on this. And truth be told in our business, as you know, my day gets interrupted. For some reason, everybody calls me. I need them to call you, but they call me and that interrupts me. But I'll tell you this. I work really good in spurts. If you try to set me down at nine in the morning and work till five with a 30-minute lunch break, I'm not going to get anything in the world done. I work very well in spurts, three-hour spurts, and then go do something totally different, take a break. That's just how well I work. I've been that way all my life. When I ran Paducah Economic Development and Lawrenceburg, Tennessee Economic Development, there were many, many days where at one o'clock, I would go home and take a nap. You may say, oh, how can you do that on a company diamond? Well, what you wouldn't see is I would end up coming back and working from four till 10 that night. That's just how I've always been. And so I kind of think that people probably have a natural rhythm to their body of how they typically work. You like to get up early in the mornings and work. I can't do that. I get a lot done at night, a whole lot. I put the game on and turn it down and I'll just sit and work. And so I think that if you learn anything from me in that, it's really learn when you're productive. If you're a morning person that's highly productive, don't let stuff distract you during that time. If you're a night person, same way. I know that I'm not hardly going to work well every day from 12 to 3. That's just kind of when I need my afternoon nap. So if you're going to distract me, I can take distractions in because I probably wasn't going to be working anyway. But I really get a lot done from, say, 9 to 12, and again from 3 to 7 or 8 at night.
1: You know, Chad, people can't call you if you leave that phone in the other room.
0: Well, I know. I guess that's why they all call me because you got your airplane mode turned off.
1: Talk a little bit about common traits that you feel uh, economic developers and successful business people share. What are some commonalities between those two? Well, I was lucky. I got to be economic development CEO
0: in rural towns. I think that's a tremendous blessing. I think you're far better off to do it in a rural town than a metro area, because if you can recruit an industry to a rural town, you can do anything, you know. If you recruit an industry to New York City or Atlanta, you very well accomplish something great. But people will always say, well, that would have come here with or without them. People will say that. I will assure you, if you can recruit a big-time manufacturing company to Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, as I did, you can be a successful business owner. And as a matter of fact, Gwen Ware, who's a good friend of mine to this day, worked with me in Lawrenceburg. She says she remembers the day that I said we landed a big industry there that I said, well, I know now I can do anything. And that was the way I looked at it. So for the economic developers out there who land industries in rural towns, you have what it takes. The things that good economic developers and successful business owners know how to do is market their product and close the deal. You got to know how to market what you got in economic development. It's a workforce or it's a building or it's an industrial park. And you got to know how to close the deal. And certainly when you start out in business, you got to know how to get your name out there and you got to know how to close the deal. And I have always known how to close the deal. Nobody taught it to me. I didn't read a book. I don't know why I know that. I think maybe being raised rural and just seeing how hardworking people are coming up, I don't know, but I've always known how to close a deal.
1: Well, I'm sure deal closer and aggressive is going to be two of them, but are there any other adjectives that you can think of that best describe traits that someone needs to be successful in the chamber economic development world?
0: Well, I only can think of myself first, and that is you need to have a why. I always had a core reason I did economic development, and it wasn't the money, it wasn't the salary, it wasn't the prestige of getting to fly to Washington, D.C. and do a fly-in or whatever. That was none of that. I did it to create jobs for blue-collar people like my daddy. Nobody else has to do that. You know, but you need a reason why you want to do this because there will be times that you need that core belief to decide what to do. There's gonna be times you get frustrated to death. I tell people being a good economic developer is like being a PGA tour golfer. Some of these boards will tell me we need to hire a Nick Saban. Well, no, Nick Saban, you're not gonna win ever game in <laughs> economic development. You'd much rather win one tournament a year like PGA Tour, you know. And so that's kind of the way I looked at it. But I always had a core, why did I do this? And I told everybody right in the interview, I said, this is why I do it. If you don't like it, don't hire me. Because if we get in an argument, it's going to be over. How can I help the blue-collar person? No question about it. You need to know how to close a deal. And I think you need to see everybody's point of view because people have very different points of view. Tim Weston taught me this. Used to as an industrial recruiter, which I was, you know, I wanted the, all the utilities to do exactly what I wanted. And I didn't really have patience for the fact that maybe the sewer system couldn't handle another two million gallons a day or whatever. So I think certainly being able to see their points of view and all is something that's very critical that I've learned over the years. And I think you also need to be focused on providing a return on investment. Whoever gives your organization money, how can you show them a return on investment?
1: Thank you, Chad. We're going to take a quick break for a message for our listeners and be right back with a lot more with Chad Chancellor right after this.
0: In June of 2020, Next Move Group launched a new initiative called The Movement, and we already have more than 100 economic developers as part of our movement. The movement was really built to help improve the quality of lives of economic developers. It helps economic developers land more deals, helps them get along better with their board and elected officials, helps them deal with the media, even helps them learn how to build their resume if they want to look for a new job. So thank you to our first 100 members, and if you want to join the movement, go to thenextmovegroup.com backslash movement to learn more
1: well we've talked a lot about success and foundation growing up but what about mistakes what's the mishaps that you've done along your career and then business
0: i got into this earlier so it's kind of going to be a repeat answer but i used to just assume that everybody would want to go create jobs as much as i did and the fact of the matter is if you're a city manager you've got 30 things you've got to worry about in a day, including the trash hadn't been picked up over here and somebody's mad at you. The dog, there's a dead dog over here, whatever. And I always thought that economic development was the most important thing. And by the way, the National League of Cities surveyed mayors, and they said that the most important thing they wanted to learn was economic development. So I was probably right. But to me, if I needed an answer to a prospect's question, that city manager ought to just drop whatever he or she was doing right then and give me the answer. And That's just the way I used to look at it. You got to remember, Paducah hired me to be their CEO when I was 28. So I've come a long way learning, you know, since then. So the mistakes I made is I always just assumed everybody was as bought in to winning as I was. And if they weren't, I took it personally and I shouldn't have. I don't think anybody was ever against me. They just weren't as bought into winning as I was. I was there to win. And anybody that wasn't, I kind of thought maybe they were my enemy. And in reality, they weren't. And now I see that all these years later.
1: Very mature of you, Chad, to to grow up and be so wise. So what's a change our listeners should consider making right now to make them more successful? If they hadn't
0: read Never Eat Alone, they need to go read it right now. That is without without a doubt my answer. I read it shortly after Robert Ingram got me the job in mobile. The mobile chamber had me going to like a cocktail event, you know, after business after hours deal. And remember I was raised rural Mississippi. So I thought, am I going to fit in with all these people and this, and that, and the other. And I went out and researched what is the best networking book and found that it was called never eat alone. And I read it and the whole book is about helping other people before you need their help, not keeping score. The whole book was about this poor kid who had the audacity to ask wealthy people to help him. I would have never ever went up to the wealthiest person in Mobile, Alabama and asked him to help little me till I read this book. And buddy, after that, I would. And I do it to this day. <laughs> I'll call the governor right now and ask him for help if I need it. And that all came from reading that book. And I know Dave Ramsey's got sayings. He says, your life will only change by the people you meet in the books you read. And that one, Certainly helped me. If you get it, I encourage you to get the old one. It was about old fashioned networking, you know, going to conferences and how to handle those. He's changed it some with all the online stuff. And frankly, I don't like the new version as well. But if you can get a hold of the old version written in about 2003 or four,
1: that'll certainly help you. It is a very good book. You put me on it 10 years ago now, and I learned a lot from it and still utilize it to this day. So I recommend it as well. Close to wrapping up here, but what would you say is the hardest decision you've ever had to make in your career or otherwise?
0: The hardest decision was something I knew I was going to do, but I didn't know when I was going to do it. I always wanted to own my own business. As you well know, we had discussed it going back to Gwen Ware in Lawrenceburg when I told her when I landed that plant, I one day want to own my own business and do this, but Paducah was paying me $250,000 when I left. I was like 32 years old. If I had sat there another three or four years, I mean, my retirement would have been over a million dollars just at a young age. You know, it's no telling the money just from the Paducah that I would have had. And so I knew that I wanted more. I had done everything there was to do. We had had success there. I was ready for a new challenge. I don't like the same problems every day. And I had always wanted to own my own business. And thanks to making that salary, I had saved enough money that I knew we could start. And if we failed, I'd have enough money. I wasn't going to go broke or I wasn't going to go hungry. So I had it in my mind I was going to do it. But making the decision on this is the day I'm going to do it, that was hard, just working up to it. But the second that I told my board I was resigning, and it would be no talking me out of it this is what i was going to do i will tell you honestly i did not look back for one second my mind was uh, you know you would have thought you'd have been scared before i did it i would have thought i would have freaked my own self out but when i did it i had a weight come off my shoulders and everything after that was how can we build next move group and it all worked out other than when i called my mother my brother i'll tell you this because (laughs) see i was raised poor and so when i called mama and said, Mama, I said, I want you to know I've quit my job. I'm starting my own company. And, you know, I was making two fifty. dollars So to Mama, that was $2.5 you know. She nearly passed out. She Daddy was a government her,
1: worker, wasn't she? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. She worked for county government. Daddy asked her what was wrong. I think she dropped the phone. I should have done it in person, you know. I didn't know she was going to react like that. She called my brother all upset and asked him what he call and talk sense into me. Maybe it wasn't too late. I could beg for my job back. And then my brother called me and he was like, mama's freaking out, you know, cause you just don't quit a $250,000 a year job to take your own chance. I still remember that. And for about the first two years, if you remember. Mm-hmm. We would get a good search, and Mama would say, "Why don't you just take that job for yourself?" And I'd
1: say, "Every well, Mama, time, it would be a bad search," and she'd suggest that. We'd I we laugh about that.
0: Yeah, I'd say, "Well, I've started my own. I'm kind of, you know, I don't do that anymore." And she'd say, "Oh, uh, you need to go take that job. It's going to pay one hundred twenty-five thousand or whatever." So, took them a while to get comfortable. With. I think seven years later they are. But you and I learned a lesson that you know to know. We started our business in September. So in reality, we had two months to work before the holidays hit. We kind of got off to a good start. We got a couple customers there in October, early November. And I will like tell you, when Thanksgiving hit our first year, from Thanksgiving to New Year's, we didn't sign one customer. It was a horrible, horrible time to start a business if you're not in the retail sector. We should have thought better that if we had any sense, we would have started our business in like April or something. So we learned that lesson. We lost money our first quarter because we didn't sign one client from Thanksgiving to Christmas. I'd call people. They'd say I'm interested, but Chad, you are got to call me after Christmas. I'm not doing anything right now. I was worried at about January the 15th or so this picket turned on and we've been signing clients ever since. So if you're out there thinking of being a next move group one day, that's my advice. Don't start it anywhere close to the holidays. You're
1: right about that. Things slowed down. We had some harsh conversations with each other there for For 50 days and we didn't sign any new contract. Did I I
0: have a harsh conversation with you?
1: We both had harsh conversations. That is very, very good advice. You should always consider the time of year because most everything's in the economy does shut down there. Even to this day, seven years in, now our last two holiday seasons have been a lot busier than the former, but every year you kind of see a slow tick during, you know, middle of November through middle of January. And see, I didn't have to quit my
0: job when I did. If we had any sense, we'd have started our business in like February or something. But that
1: stuff you just don't learn till you do it. I think anybody that's listened to these last two podcasts realized that we don't have much sense. So (laughs) we got through it somehow. So everybody next week, Chad will be back on here uh, hosting the podcast again. I want to thank everybody for letting me sub in and definitely thank Marco Mel for suggesting this. And as always, Chad, the final question I'll leave you is how do you want to be remembered? Well, for years and years and years,
0: I wanted to be remembered for fighting for blue-collar, hard-working people like my daddy. That's why economic development interests me. You well know, I'm not interested in, uh, I do it because I have to, but I'm not interested in receptions and the governor's ball and uh, the Washington, D.C. fly-in. The prestige and all that, that doesn't interest me. What I'm interested in is helping blue-collar people get work. People who want to work, I want them to be able to find a job close to where they live so they don't have to leave home for the whole week unless they just want to. But I would tell you, I still want to be remembered for that. But if we can grow this movement, Alex, to where we are helping boards understand the economic developer's job, which in turn will make economic developer's jobs easier, I'd also like to be remembered for that. If something happens to me two years from now, I'd like folks to say, you know, he fought for a lot of people like his daddy, but he also fought for a lot of economic developers. That's exactly how I'd want to be remembered.
1: Well, that's a good answer, Chad. Anything you want to leave our listeners with? I know you get to talk to them every week, but.
0: Not really. I'm glad to have you on here, Hosta. Thanks to Mark O'Mell for this idea. We would have probably thought this was too much talking about ourselves. If Mark hadn't said, hey, I want y'all to do a podcast on yourself. Alex, I think it was good for the people to hear your story because I am our loudmouth one to do most of this. They might have known a lot of this about me, but I think it was good for them to hear your story last week. And as our team keeps growing, we have hired some crackerjack people working for us, the whole team. And so as they keep growing, we're going to expose them to more and more of these shows and whatnot. But uh, I think it's always good to go back to how we got started. And so I appreciate Mark O'Mail for asking us to do this.
1: All right. Well, everybody will tune in next week. Thank you, Chad.